Okay, so let's get back into the, the swing of it, the mood in a while. So we left off, hi Ruthie, we left off with uh, Shmuel sort of retiring and now we're moving into the, the, uh, the story of Shaul's kingship. It got off to a bit of a, uh, what should we say, an up and down start. It started with him not, not being forceful enough, not taking enough, uh, not taking enough uh, initiative, and and letting people sort of make negative comments and not taking charge. And then we saw in chapter eleven what I call Shaul's finest hour, where he really takes charge and he goes forward and he, you know, he fights the uh, king of Ammon. It's resounding victory and everyone is extremely happy. And that's a very beautiful situation. However, however, we're moving into the more problematic parts of Shaul's career. And um, the there's two major problems that happen with him. One is here in the story of the battle with the Plishtim. Chapters 13 and 14 are really a unit. And 13 is the beginning, the setting the stage, sort of. And 14 is at the Shem next week. 14 is the continuation of this war. It's ex extremely, um, 14 is an extremely long chapter. We'll have to move fast next week. Bezrat Hashem. But the idea is that we really have to um, follow his career very carefully to try to figure out where, where do we go wrong here and what was what was the problem. Okay, so we'll go right into the text. going on here. Where's my screen? Okay, here we go. Okay, so I'd like first to look at this particular edition of the chapter, Mikronet. And we see that chapter 13 is divided into several sections. I would have further subdivided the first part. And what we see here is Shaul's preparation for being a king, the trigger that starts off the war, and and then the great test that Shoal has to, uh, you know, undergo in terms of his relationship to uh, Hashem, the Navi, and uh, he he fails, he fails the test there. That's quite tragic. And then you continue with. The preparations for the battle. So, what chapter 13 is really kind of laying the foundation for what's going to happen in chapter 14. Okay, let's go here. This is my favorite. Shmuel Aleph, Parakud, Gimel, Pasuk Aleph. And we begin with one of the most problematic sukim. Ben Shana Shaul b'Malcho u'Shtei Shanim Malach Yisrael. 
Now, for anyone who knows any Hebrew, Ben Shana is, is very problematic. Ben Shana means he was one year old. And of course, that's crazy. The second half of the Pasuk is he ruled for two years. Now, the reason this is so problematic is we have to understand that later on in the time of the kings, we're going to see that this is the standard description of the uh, of each king. Each king gets this line. So-and-so was so many years old when he began to reign, and he ruled so many years. This is the standard description. And here we have Ben Shana Sha'ul Bimolcho. Sha'ul was one year old. It doesn't make sense to say he was one year old. He's a grown man, right? It's very, very weird. And he rules two years on Israel. It's also problematic because an awful lot happens in those two years. So let's take them, what the Israelis call para para, one at a time. The first question, how can he be one year old when he began to, to rule? Now, if we look at Rashi, Rashi says, Amru Rabotenu, Okay, Rashi begins immediately with a, with a medrash, and here it is in the Gemara, in Yuma 22b. Uh, where are we? Okay. The Gemara, Ben Shana Shalom He was like a one-year-old who never tasted sin, which is lovely. But then, Matkifle Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak. Rav Yitzchak says, "No, I don't like that because what I know about one-year-old Ben Shana Muluflach One-year-olds always very dirty. They're full of mud and other stuff. That we're not going to say what that is. So, uh, right? And so, what happened that? Uh, Rav Nachman by Yitzchak had a terrible nightmare that night, a terrible dream. And uh, and he he realized that he had been disrespectful to Shaul HaMelech, and he said, right, I am I apologize to you, bones of Shaul, son of Kish. And then the next night he had another nightmare. It's an interesting Gemara. And he realized that he hadn't been respectful enough even when he apologized, and he said, And then he said, I have, I apologize to you, right, the bones of Shaul ben Kish, who is, was the king of Israel. And then he stopped having the nightmares. It's an interesting uh, situation. Okay, so Rashi, it's very interesting. You have to like think about Rashi. Rashi usually looking for the pshat. He's always saying, I want to get to the pshat. So when he begins with the medrash, instead of the, usually he says, this is the pshat, literally, or whatever it is. And then he says, right, umedrash. And here he starts with the medrash and he goes to the more pshat explanation, which is kind of an indication that he, he likes this medrash. Shaul was like a one-year-old. He was very, very pure. But if you look at the Rashi, here it says, so here we have the the most shot that we can do with 
really, really difficult passage like that and say, in the first year of his reign, and he reigned for two years, and then he, you know, go on to Pasuk Bed, he chose people for his army. So that's the most shot that we could get here. In other words, in the first year of his reign. Now, Radak, Radak suggests, Radak, Radak says, he brings another medrash, which is also very interesting. Right, I have to this a little bit. And he says, um, the old bidrash, another drash, is that when he ruled, when he became king, he had uh, like a Yom Kippur, all of his previous sins were atoned for, and he became pure like a one-year-old. And it says, Three people have their sins forgiven, a chatan, and we know that because we always say that for kala and a chatan, the wedding day is like a Yom Kippur, they're forgiven for their sins. And a chacham, a person who is appointed as a, to a position of some sort of rabbanut, and nasi. And how do we know about the nasi? ben ben was he one year old? Ella Matina Benyamu Nakimevo Kahaya Shobamoho Nakimevanata Biyom Shimabah. So we can't do a whole lot with this Pusik without resorting to Drash or just saying that it was the beginning. It was uh, in the beginning, you know, in the first year of his reign. So we can we can leave it there because it's a very problematic Pasik. And let's go to the second half of the Pasik. The second half of the Pasik is also problematic, Station in Mamah Israel. So how can this be? And you see, uh, the, this Pasuk is taken literally in terms of the two years by the Seder Olam. What is the Seder Olam? The Seder Olam is a medrash that gives you the chronology of the Tanakh. And the Seder Olam just accepts this as fact. It says he ruled for two years and that's it. Doesn't say that he was one year old. It's impossible because he has grown children at that time. He must have been at least forty when he became king. But we are we are saying we're we're taking this explanation of Rashi that it was in the first year of his reign because we really don't have anything else to do with that particular phrase. But the two years is problematic, and so we have like a sort of uh, uh, division amongst the the commentaries. And half of them say, okay, this is what the Seder Olam says, and therefore we accept that. He ruled for two years. And then you have, along comes Rabbi Shaya Mitrani, and he says, it's, this doesn't make sense. And he comes up with a very, very interesting theory. And he says, look, he ruled for two years before David was anointed. So he had two years of his own complete rule. But after David was anointed, his leadership was full of fears and trouble and problems. And he wasn't actually the king because David had been anointed. And therefore, that period of time is not included in the two years of his rulership. But he lived quite a long time spending his time chasing David around. 
So that's that's the thesis of Abishai Mitrani. And the Abarbanel and the Malbim uh, uh, agree with this. The Ralbag has more problems with the Ben Shana, right? And he, he what the Ralbag does is he said the first year, in the first year of his rule, he says between the time that he was actually anointed and the time when he actually became king and the, the Simcha at Gilgal, that was a year. So really what the Ralbag is doing here is kind of giving it three years. The first year when he was this, and then the two more years. But the Abarmel and Malbim say this this, this just makes sense. Uh, uh, it's just a very, very difficult, difficult story, right? And they want to say, and I and I actually I like this idea. I'll tell you this few few reasons why um, the idea of Rabbi Shai Mitrani and the Abarmel and the Malbim why it makes sense. And one is that when we meet Shaul. He is Bahuratov. He's so handsome that these girls can't stop talking to him. So, I mean, how old can he be at that point? Right? And when he dies, his fifth child, right, Ishboshit is 40. So he's gotta be somewhere in the range of 60. Well, that's his fifth child, 65. I don't know. And then if you say that, and he only ruled for two years, that means he became king when he was 63. And listen, you know, there's some very good looking older men, but I don't know, it's problematic a little bit. And the, the Barbanel puts together a whole chronology, which is pages and pages long. I did go through it. And, and he says that, that really there must've been something like 15 years uh, that, that uh, David was anointed and they were like, kind of two kings running around and so Shoal died at a more reasonable age and he was younger so it's it's a problem okay so I'm going to leave you with this problem and we'll just go we'll just say that the Chazal want us to understand in the first year of his reign and he ruled for two years and whatever we make with that okay so you have a question Amy Adina unmute yourself you what no Okay, okay, Pasik Bet. Now, what's happening here by Yevcharlo Shaul Pasik Bet, Shloshdalfim Yisrael, by Yuim Shaul, Alpayim Bemichmas, Ubahar Bet El, the Elif Ayuim Yonatan, Begivat Binyamin, Beyetah Ha'am Shilach Yishlam Allah. Now, if you recall back in chapter eight, just show you briefly, right? The first thing when Shmuel told him, this king is going to be hard on you, the first thing he says, right? He's going to take your sons. He's going to need an army. He's going to need a whole, uh, you know, we never had this. There was never a standing army in the Jewish history, in Jewish history, right? We had, you know, co-ops and we had, you know, whole gangs of people. We never had a standing army, but a king works differently than a Moshe Rabbeinu, right? The king has to have his, Pomp in his circumstance. So he takes 3,000 men. But if you see here that he sends everyone else home, then we have to understand that he is not expecting to fight a war. If you're expecting to fight a war, you don't send everyone else home. That's strange. So let's take a look at the geography here. I have a map for you. He has 2,000 in Michmas. There's Michmas, okay. Here's Yerushalayim, just for those of you who are into maps like me. This is Yerushalayim, 
this is Gibat Shul. It's kind of the area where I used to live in Neve Yaakov. And further up north, you have Geva Binyamin and Michmas. It's probably a half an hour drive from Rishalayim. And he has Michmas and Beit El, which is northwest. And he has his people there. And he has also um, a thousand with Yonatan in Givat Binyamin. This is the debate if this is Geva Binyamin or this is Geva Binyamin. Gebat Shaul, Geva, it's uh, hilly places. Now, we don't really know who Yonatan is at this point. We have not been told. We know that it's later on. We find out that it's Shaul's oldest son, the crown prince, that he, that's Yonatan. But we see that he, he has plans to sort of have this standing army and his kingship and set it up in this area, in the Binyamin area, north of Rushalayim. And then an interesting development happens. Pasuk Gimel. Vayach Yonatan. I a question, Esther? I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. It says that he had 3,000 men. 2,000 he kept in um, Michmas, and 1,000 were with Yonatan. So who's the Yeter? Uh, you, you got muted again. Who's the Yeter Ha'am? So it, it seems as if, if we go back to chapter 12, right? This is all the speech of Shmuel. And the people are gathered. They gather, they celebrate the, um, the, the leadership of Shaul. Let me just write there. Um Nelchah Gilgal, at the beginning of this speech, Shmuel says, uh, before the speech, let's go to Gilgal and we will renew the kingship there. Right? So it seems if we're just going to assume that the the kingship is going on like this. Oops. I don't know, I got blurry all of a sudden. Am I blurry to you or just to me? I'm blurry. You're blurry. Okay, so it seems as if the nation is gathered for this, uh, you know, for the renewal of the kingship for everyone accepting and for this retirement speech of Shmuel, and everyone goes home afterwards. And that seems to indicate that Shaul is not preparing for war. It looks like that. And everybody goes home. So it looks like he's planning to have a thousand of his people in Michmas, a thousand in Beit El, and a thousand in uh, Givat Binyamin. That's enough to have a standing army, but it's not enough for a threat that's going to happen now. And it seems as if what happens in Pasuk Gimel was something totally unexpected by Shaul. And it's very strange. It's very, very strange. We'll, we'll take a look at Pasuk Gimel. Bayach Yonatan and Nitziv plushtim asher begeva, Bayishmu plushtim. And Yonatan, the crown prince, kills the Nitziv plushtim, the plushti, what do you call it, Nitziv, the officer that is in Geva, and the plushtim hear about it. 
the show Takava Shofar, and Shaul blows the Shofar, Bechol Haaretz, the whole country, Lemor, Yishmu Ha'ivrim. The Hebrews should hear what has happened. So now we have a problem. Okay. First of all, why does Jonathan kill this officer? Let's start, let's go back a second. Why is the officer there? And the Radzak goes into a whole discussion of this and other, uh, the Matsuda Sion says here, he was appointed to take taxes. What we have to understand, we have to remember that there's been a very long period of time where the Pushtama really have the upper hand. They really have the upper hand. The, The Jewish people, push them off. It's like the time of Shimshon. Shimshon makes a uh, a dent in the Plishtim. But the the angel tells Shimshon's mother, right, who he's be, going to begin to save the Jews from the Philistines. The Philistines are forced to be reckoned with and they're there and they stay there and they're problematic. They're extremely problematic. So when we go to chapter four in Shmuel Aleph, a few chapters back, there's a tremendous war there. That's when they steal the Aron, and the Aron, you know, goes around. There's this whole thing. Chapter seven, we get a little bit of a break because while Shmuel is leading the people, the Plishtim are pushed back. And at the end of that time, right, we are told in the beginning of chapter eight that Shmuel is getting old, that Shmuel is, you know, his sons are not going this way. That's when the people start asking for a king. In terms of the Philistines, the Radak makes an interesting comment in, in, at the end of chapter seven. He says, as long as Shmuel was vigorous, the Plishtim were held back. But once Shmuel was getting old, the Plishtim came back. And the Plishtim are really running the show. And in this chapter, we are going to be told, especially at the end of the chapter, just how much they're running the show to the point where they have their officers stationed in different places. If you recall back in chapter 10, that one of the three signs that Shul is going to go through is that he's going to have to, um, he's going to have to go to the hill of God and he's going to get prophecy there. It says, Asher Sham, right? And it's even pushed him. That's where the Pushti officers are. So they're here in Geba and they're around and they're collecting taxes and they're in charge. So what is Yonatan's point in killing this guy, this push the overlord, right? Really, there can only be one point, and that point is to make trouble, to start a war. And the next question we have to ask is, is this with or without Shoal's permission? And that's really, you know, what, what Israelis call Oshikeno Shalom. It's almost impossible to answer that question. Does Shaul know about this? The Malbim says, absolutely not. Malbim says, Asazot Shalomidat Aviv. His father does not know about this. And that would make a certain amount of sense. I understand the, the Malbim's reasoning. Excuse me. <clears throat> because if Shaul knew about it, then he's kind of lackadaisical with his army. And he's starting up a war. But the fact that Yonatan would go ahead and do this without his father's permission, what, Zalmer Darshani, like, what does that tell us about Yonatan? Like, he is a very, one thing it tells us for sure, he's an independent player. He does what he thinks. And if he 
doesn't agree, if he if he um, if he does it against his father's wishes, then what are you doing? Now take a look how this plays out because it's very actually very interesting. He says Yishmuarivrim Shaul hears that this has happened and he says and the Plishtim heard about it, so they're going to retaliate. So he he tells all the Jews, look out, the Plishtim are going to be retaliating. And all the Jews here, now watch this, lay more. He cast Shaul at Nitzib Plishtim. Shaul killed the Nitzib Plishtim, the Plishti officer. But wait a second, we just read by Yonatan in So why are the people saying Shaul killed him? Right? And Mitsuda says, Avshe Yonatan Shaul. This is what we call in America, the buck stops here. You're the king. This is your responsibility. And we don't really care if it was your son. And in a weird kind of way, okay, I don't think I have to elaborate on how important the sons of the prime ministers and presidents are and how much of a role they play and how carefully they are scrutinized. So Shaul does this, and Yonatan uh, does this, and Shaul is blamed for it. And Shaul can't, there's nothing he could do about it now because it's done. So the first thing we learn in this chapter is the leaders are responsible. You know, you have to keep your people in check because if they're running around saying things or doing things that are not what you want them to do, you're going to get blamed for it. So the book stops here. And the Pasuk continues, Pasuk Dalit, Now the word uh, means they became smelly, malodorous. My favorite word here would be odious. The Pushtim are really angry. So the people are gathered, this is a passive, after Shaul to Gilgal. The people don't know what to do. The Pushtim are on the warpath, and that is not a good thing. So they come running to show who's in Gilgal. Now, I want to go back for a second because I want to point out the very strange usage here. I think I might have mentioned in chapter four. It says, Yishmu ha'ivrim. The expression ivrim, like it's very poetic in this, by Yishmu plishtim, Yishmu ivrim. What are these ivrim? Where did this come from? And since the Chumash, we haven't been ivrim. In Perak Dalin, when the plishtim go out to work on Sidhus, it says, what is the noise when they bring the Aron? This is Bimachaneha Ivrim. And afterwards it says, it talks about the Ivrim. So the first thesis would be to say that when we're talking, when non Jews are talking about Jews, they call us Ivrim. On the other hand, this hasn't happened since Chomish. I mean, Yosef, Guno, Gunafti, Meritza, Ivrim, and Abraham was an Ivri, right? We have this everything, but since we came into the land of Israel, we have been B'nai Yisrael. So that's a very, very interesting distinction. I want to point out a very, very interesting idea that um, my husband's grandfather, Yaakov Kamenetsky, says here. He says that Ivrim, and you know, if you think about it, there's two more places where Ivrim comes out. One is Yonah. Yonah says, Ivri Anohi, and I made a song about it. You all know the song. Yonah says every Anochi, and that's like it's long time later. It's a couple hundred years, maybe more, a few hundred years after this, and he says every Anochi. 
And also we have the concept of Evet Ivri. So if Yaakov puts this all together, he says, not just how the non-Jews refer to us or how we refer to ourselves with the non-Jews, but it, it means a person who only has Torah Ever. He has the, the Torah of outside of the land. He doesn't have land. And that works with the evidentiary. I thought it's a very, very beautiful explanation because the evidentiary, he doesn't have land. He doesn't have property. Property. Yonah's on a boat. He's no longer in his land. And in the, the story with the Plishtim, we are in our own land, but the Plishtim are ruling it. So therefore, we're all Ivrit. It's an interesting thing, the whole everything. Let's go on. Okay, so the people are now running to Shaul, Pasike. And the Pushtim are gathering an incredible army. Pushtim Nasru, Pasakei, Vilachim Yisrael, Shloshim Elif Recha, Vishashit Elif Yimbarshim, Vaam Kachol Shel Svatayam Larov. And the Pushtim gathered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, think tanks. A chariot would be, let's say, equivalent to a tank. Sheshit Elif Yimbarshim, 6,000 mounted horsemen, right? Vaam Kachol Shel Svatayam Larov. And the nation that was like sand on the seashore for multitudes. This is a lot of people, the infantry. And if you want to make a comparison, Cairo had 600 chariots and Sisera had 900 chariots. And you're saying the Plishtim have 30,000. This is like an incredible fighting force. And the Jews are panicking. And the men of Israel saw that it was Tsar. Tsar means narrow, like Gesher Tsar Ma'od. And anytime you're in trouble, you're in a tight spot. You're in a narrow place. And the people saw Kitsarlo, we are not in a good spot. You know, if you go back and say, Shul has 3,000 men, well, whoop to do The odds are pretty nasty, right? They are pressured. They are uh, fearful. And they hide. This is almost embarrassing. It is not almost a memory. It is embarrassing. They hid Bama'arod in caves, Chabachim, which are thickets, Baslaim, behind rocks, Batsurchim, Baba'arod. Atsaria is variously translated as a forest or a tower. A forest makes more sense. I don't know how many towers are running around here. And Borot in pits. I mean, this is an indication of an absolute massive panic. And if you saw that army coming, I don't actually think that you would feel any any happier. Pasik Zion, the Ivrim Yardain, Eretz God the Gilad, right? And they also, if you if you go back to this map, you see that. Oh, wait a second, I gotta move everything here. Whoops. Here's the Jordan. Wait a second, it's over. Here's the Jordan, right? And this Gilgal. Gilgal's right over. The border and Shaul is here in Gilgal. So these people are are running east and they're not stopping to go to Shaul. They cross the Jordan and they think they'll have more safety on the other side. So this is also the land of God and Gilad on the other side. This is also not a very happifying thing, right? But Shaul Odenba Gilgal, he's still in Gilgal, the Chala Am Harav. And a lot of people that were with him trembled. Harada, Haredim means one who trembles before God. If they were Haredim, they trembled after him. This is the great panic of this time. Now, I just want to show you here. It's extremely important to understand what's happening here. Go back to chapter 10. Now, if you recall, after Shaul, 
gets anointed, right? Shmuel gives him in chapter 10, three different um, uh, tests, experiences that he has to go through, right? He has to meet the two people who Bakeva Rachel and meet the three people going with the food. And then he, he meets the, the prophets and he prophesizes. And after that, Pasachet, the Yaratatalafanai Hagilgal, you will go down before me to Gilgal. You'll be there before me. This is Shmuel speaking. I'm going to be going down to you to bring up uh, elevation offering and to bring also peace offerings. You will wait seven days until I come to you and then I will tell you what you will do. Now, um, if you look at the Rashi here, right, you wait for me to the end of seven days, right? You wait. Now, Radak says at this point, which I'm not going to show you the Radak right now, the Radak says over there that this is going to be the test for Shmuel, for Shaul. Shmuel says, wait seven days. Now, when Shaul is told, wait seven days for me in Gilgal, I'm coming to you, Shaul has no idea of the tremendous pressure that he's going to be under to keep that command. It's not like, oh, wait seven days, we'll be sitting around twirling our thumbs and, you know, and reading books and, you know, and, and, and eating chocolate. And then when Shmuel comes, we'll have the sacrifices. No, no. He is in the midst of a very frightening situation. His army is hiding, running, chasing, going over the border, disappearing. And the Plishtim are gathering massive amounts. And he's sitting there in Gilgal waiting seven days for Shmuel. This is really hard. This is not a simple thing. He had no idea that this would be so hard. Okay, Pasikhet. By Yochel Shivat Yamim. And he waits the seven days. Good. There's a word missing here. It seems at the time that Shmuel, that's literal, probably at the time that Shmuel appointed, below Ba Shmuel, Shmuel doesn't come. Does this remind you of scenarios we've seen? Waiting for Moshe Rabbeinu to come down with the Luchot, and he doesn't come. Right, they saw Kipo Where's Moshe? And Shmuel's not coming, but Yafitza Ame and the people start scattering. By Yafutsu, Yafutsu Aiva, we say this is like a, oh my gosh, he's sitting there, and you can imagine that kind of pressure. The terrible, huge army there, right? The his being in Gilgal when everything is happening in Michmas, he's not doing any sitting and waiting for Shmuel. Shmuel's not coming, right? And Shaul. Can't handle it. And he says, Bring me the Ola and the Shlamim. There's two different types of sacrifice here. The Ola is the one that is burnt entirely, and the Shlamim is uh, left whole. Parts are taken and smoked and everything else, and that is meant for, for eating. The article very cleverly translates Ola as an elevation offering, which I really, I love that translation. It's a good one. Okay, so he says, bring me the carbonate, and he brings up the Ola. Only the first one. He doesn't get to the second one, Pasuk Yud. Vayahi, and of course, because this is, this is you know, what we call in Israel, Chok Murphy, 
right? Just as he's finishing to bring up the Ola, now he may always indicates a surprise. And Shaul goes to greet him, to bless him. But Shmuel is a Navi. What have you done? What have you done? Shmuel knows. Shmuel knows. Bayomer Shmuel. Maasita. Bayomer Shmuel. Kiraiti. He's got three things he says here. Number one. Kiraiti kinafata amel. I saw the people leaving me. Number two. You didn't come when the day, seven days that you said. That's the second thing. And the third thing, the Plishtim are gathered at Michmas. And I, you know, in other words, when I saw all these three things together, you're not coming. Prosecuted by Omar Ata. And I said, the Plishtim are going to come to attack me at Gilgal. And I have not, the word Chiliti. The Mitsudas explains it here. Is I, I I didn't pray, I didn't pray. Um, it's just interesting. The the Targum and others like take it to a place of Aramaic sweetness. I didn't sweeten. I didn't. I, I didn't do my pilot. Yeah, I have to understand. We we right away we we understand davening. We don't really relate so much to the idea of the carbonate. But in Shaul's mind, hey, I can't go out to war if I don't, you know, send my sacrifices to God. And Shaul's not here. So I'll do it. And he seems to rationalize this, right? And he says, And I held myself back and I brought up the Ola. Now the word lehit apak means to hold yourself back. We right, we famously see this in the, in the Megillah when Haman is so angry with Mordechai, he holds himself back. What, and how does it even work in this contest? What does it mean he holds himself back? And Rashi has an interesting point. Rashi says, I overcame my desire. My heart said to wait for you. My heart said, wait. I forced myself, I overcame my inclination and I brought it up, which is just so interesting. And the Malbim says, I didn't start the war. I held myself back and didn't start the war. In other words, the Malbim tries to explain Shaul by saying, Shaul understood from Shmuel that he's going to give him directions for how to run the war. But the sacrifice is not the thing that Shmuel has to do. But it's not going to work. Pasekid Gimel. By Diskalta. You have been foolish. Lo shamartet mitzvat Hashem You've been foolish. You didn't keep the mitzvah that Hashem commanded you. Ki ata. Now, if you had kept the mitzvah, heichin Hashem mitmam lachtachal Yisrael adolam. God would have established your kingdom forever. I don't love, I'll talk about this in a second, 
and now your kingship will not uh, endure. God wants someone who is agrees, like who understands God's heart and intentions. And God will put him as a ruler over his nation. You didn't hear, you didn't obey what God commanded you. Okay, so let's let's take a minute and try to uh, figure this out. <clears throat> Shaul excuses himself by saying, the people were leaving, the Plishtim are gathering, and you didn't come. Right? And Shmuel doesn't accept this excuse because he says, you were supposed to listen to the command. And you didn't listen. So as a result of this, the punishment that Shaul is going to get is very terrible. In other words, he, he telling him, your kingship would have endured. Now, of course, the Mepharshim go into long discussions about this. How could his kingship have endured? David is supposed to be the king. The tribe of Yehuda is a tribe of kingship, not the tribe of Benjamin. What does this mean? So the Rabbag has a suggestion here, and the Ramban goes into a long discussion in the, in the Chumash, on Lo Yasir Shevet Yehuda. And what did actually, what could have happened if Shaul had not messed up? It was, if Hashem says he would have kept his kingship, then something would have worked, what it would have been. So there's many suggestions. The Ramban says that maybe he would have been king over Binyamin, and then Ralbag says, Adolam in many contexts means 50 years. 50 years, you know, Adolam, like uh, he will sit there like the the uh, the, the slave until 50 years, the Yobel, 50 years, different things. Maybe that's what he meant. But it doesn't matter because we could discuss that. But the point is, Hashem was prepared to give him this reward of dynasty with his children if he hadn't messed up. And now we have to try to figure out what is the great sin? Because, you know, he only got started at the end of the day. He only did the Ola. What's so terrible? And it kind of reminds you of other cases where God really lowers the boom. Moshe Rabbeinu, he, he hit the rock. Uh, you know, and we have a concept that a Baruch is Medaktekim the greater the person, the more they have to be careful. On the other hand, no one's ever been in this position before. We're, we're talking about uh, a Jewish king. We never had a Jewish king before. So let's go back for a second. And it's interesting. This was actually this past week's parsha, Shoftim. Okay. We are told when you make a king, he is not allowed to do X, Y, and Z. Right? Pasachav. This is in Parakid Zion and Dvarim. He should not become haughty over his brothers. And he must not turn away from the commandments right or left. So that his kingship will have long days for him and his sons in the midst of Israel. And now Rashi addresses this, and Rashi says, In other words, if it's true that he listens and his children and him have long 
kingship, then you know that the opposite is also true. And that's what we found with Shaul. Chen matzini b'Shaul, Shamal Shmuel, Shivat Yamim Tochal Ad Bo Yelecha, Lhalot Olot Uktiv, Vayochel Shivat Yamim, Lo Shamar Tachatel Nishmor Kol Yom, Lo Hispik Lhalot Olot Ad Shabbat Shmuel, Lo Amar Lo Nizkalta. Hala Manita Shivshvil Mitzvah Kala Shal Navi Neenash. Rashi says because he didn't listen to the command of the Navi, he was punished. In other words. Who has to listen more than the king? Nobody. The king's obligation is so supreme, he must listen to what the Navi says because he's the one with the biggest um, obligations. Right? And Kaddish Baruch Hu wants people to understand, and this is the great danger of having a king, the king starts thinking that he's in charge. And a Kaddish Baruch Hu says, no, 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 he has to remember that a Kaddish Baruch Hu is in charge, in charge. And a Kaddish Baruch Hu is the one who makes war. A Kaddish Baruch Hu is the one who wages the war. So there's basically two problems here. One is disobedience. And the other is lack of faith. Lack of faith. You think that if you wait another few hours, like you're told, God can't fix the war at that point? And so much of this situation is intended to show us, Shaul, and us and all the Jewish people that the war belongs to God, right? It's, it, and Shmuel says to him, God could do this with a miracle. You're thinking like a person who doesn't have God on his side. That's not the way it works. But the terrible part of this story is that there's no more interaction. After lowering the boom like this, right, Shmuel leaves, leaving Shaul in this mess, right? So one of the things we have to learn here is that we are supposed to keep these bits for We are supposed to follow, right, just like Shaul. And then we have to have a Muna, even when things are darkest and when things are most difficult and going through some very, very hard times. We are right now. There's difficult things going on. We have to have a Muna, the Kashbar who can take care of things. And, and really, it's not up to the armies. Okay, so now we go back to this situation. Can I ask a question, Esther? Yeah. <clears throat> so it was already decided here that Shaul's rule will not continue? So let's make a distinction. What's happening here is that he loses dynasty. He doesn't lose the kingship until after the mess with Amalek. When he messes up the second time with Amalek, then God says, God tears away your kingship. But he himself remains king now. It's just that his children will not continue. That's what he loses here. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Pasik Tetva, Bayakam Shmuel, Bayam and Hagilgo, Gibat Binyamin. Shmuel leaves and he goes to Gibat Binyamin. But if Kochel Ta'am and Imi Mokashishmo each, he's got 600 men at this point. This is kind of a, you know, a downer. Pasik Tetzai and the Shol, Yonatan Binova, Amnan and Saimam, Yoshwim Begeva Binyamin, Pushtim Hanu Bimichmas. Back to our map, right? Shol comes here, his people in Michmas. Michmas has been overrun with Philistines. And Shaul and his people come together. What actually happens here, and, and next week, I'll try to get you a good picture, is there, there's a 
great their um, valley with lots of um, rocks in between the two armies. Pasuk Yud Zayin. The mashchit are, um, what, what they want to do now, the plishtim, is show these Jews who's boss. So they're sending out raiding parties, destroyers and killers, to punish the Jews for their chutzpah. And they send them out in three directions, okay? One direction is north, right, to Ofra. Here is the sub-map here. You see, this is their camp, the camp of the Philistines. One uh, raiding party is going north here. And then one is going to go west, right, to Beit Haron, right near where I live. And the other one is going to go east toward the valley of the strange reptiles. Wait, we'll get to that pasuk. Very, very strange phrase. There seems to have been a, a species of very uh, destructive uh, creatures overlooking that way. But then it was going north, east, and west. And this is kind of interesting because in the, in the battle that Shaul fought with Ammon, he divided the nation into three heads, and he went out to destroy the Ammonites. And now that tactic is being used against him. Now, the, the rest... The, I wouldn't say the rest of the parak, but most of the rest of the parak is devoted to a very strange phenomenon we have to talk about. And that is that, and, and I think there's something we can really relate to in, mon in modern warfare. If you are able to make weapons, then you get into more trouble. Really. Israel is trying so hard to keep the Iranians from getting the bomb. There's not a blacksmith to be found in the entire land of Israel. Because the Philistines said, lest the Jews make a spear or a sword, a sword or a spear. First of all, the word Eretz Yisrael is the first time it appears. And I think it's sort of interesting because in this whole chapter where we're Ivrim, 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 and we're under the thumb of the Philistines, it's as if the Tanakh is telling us it's Eretz Yisrael. It's still our land, even though they are uh, the power. And the Pushtim say they can't have a sword or a spear. Now, wait a minute. There are no weapons going on here. No sword and no spear. And don't forget, if you don't have a blacksmith and you're a farmer, what do you do? So we've gone into this whole list of farming implements that need to be sharpened because otherwise they are not going to work. Like sharpen the saw, right? <clears throat> so they have to go down to the land of the Philistines, which is the coastal area, right? the uh, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Aza area, because that's where all the, the blacksmiths have been kidnapped to. And if you want to sharpen or polish your plowshare, your um, spade, your axe, your pickaxe, all these different things, and the shlosh shown is that pitch, uh, three uh, pronged fork, the pitchfork, the kardom, an axe, and to set up the, the dorban, which is a gold, Right. There was another thing besides going down to the Philistines, right? There was something called the Pisira, which is some kind of 
file and it cost a pin. The whole Pitsira pin, there's a whole darshan on this, but we found, uh, we <laughs> take personal credit for it, the archaeologists have found coins that are called pim. So it cost a pin to file your farming implements. Can you imagine how hamstrung the Jews are and what do they do? So Radak goes into a discussion of this. He says, like, what, what are they supposed to do without weapons? And he says they use sticks and stones and bows and arrows and slingshots, whatever came to hand. But they did not have the advanced weaponry of swords and spears, right? On the day of this war, nobody in the whole army had a sword or a spear. Um, the nation that was with Shol and Yonatan had no weapons. However, Yonatan and Shaul did have um, weapons. And of course, the question is, how did they have weapons? Rashi says it was a miracle. And um, Radak says that an angel gave it to them. Very interesting. And the Chazal say Shaul never traveled without a knife to um, shecht his meat. So he had that knife. And we see that come up later in chapter 14. But we are, we are painting a very grim picture of the um, tremendous discrepancy between the Polishti army, well-equipped, numerous, full of the up-to-date weapons. The Polishti, don't forget, they kind of Greek-like in their in their attitudes and very, very belligerent, very warlike. And then on the other hand, you have this, you know, crew of farmers who can barely sharpen their, their farming implements, who probably, uh, you know, put together a few slingshots and bows and arrows between them. And it's kind of pathetic. And there's very few of them. There's only 600 left. And and this is what, what it is. And this is what we're facing. And again, What's the point of this whole story? The point of this whole story is we're going to see Bezrat Hashem next week, how Kaddish Baruch Hu can take the situation. And many times in Tanakh, we see, we see the principle of Ela Barecha, Ela Basusa, right? That it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they have. What matters is if Kaddish Baruch Hu is on our side and Kaddish Baruch Hu can help us. And the problem we have here is that we have a king who is thinking how outnumbered he is, how outclassed he is in terms of um, material and equipment for war. And he's you know, now just been given a, a tremendous slap in the face by the prophet, and he's in a really bad place. So this is a very big problem. And they are sitting there, Shaul and his small little army, and the Plishtim, they're not just sending out the raiding parties, Pasuk Kap Gimel, it's the last Pasuk in this parak. And the standing army of the Plishtim are going to take over the Mifmash Pass, not just the raiding parties. So he's just completely, hopelessly uh, outclassed in terms of, of the weaponry. And we who have been studying, you know, Sefer Shoftim and seeing these things, we're saying, Gohar wants to maximize the nace, 
Bezrat Hashem, we're going to see the nace, but we need to have the characters in the story able to, you know, follow through with those thoughts. And it's it's just kind of been a little bit of a downer here for Shaul in this situation. But we're 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 being taught here. Our big lesson is right. We need Hashem to help us. And that's how we uh, that's how we overcome our enemies. And Bezrat Hashem, halavai. In the future, right now, Hashem will help us overcome our enemies. Okay, I'm going to stop this share. Okay, if anyone has any questions, any comments, you can unmute yourselves. Hi, I would like to say something, Esther. Hi, it's so nice to be here tonight, finally. It's Tova Weinberg. Yeah. <laughs> really, thank you so much. So uh, when you're speaking about uh, when, I want to make sure I got it right, when Shmuel started the, made the Ola and Shaul came, is that right? Did I get it right? Shaul. Shmuel came. Shaul made the, Shaul did the Ola. It's always very confusing. So, and Shmuel was saying that he really needed to have that Amuna right until the end and just like hold out, you know? Yeah. So I was kind it kind of reminded me a little bit of Nachshan Ben Aminadav. Like when they had to leave um, Mitzrayim, he left with full faith and he just like went straight into the water that was like in Yamsuf. And then once he went straight into the water, Hashem opened the waters, but he actually you know, went in there with Amuna. So I don't know if it's the right analogy or not, because technically maybe he was- The supposed leap to... of faith. The leap of faith. Yeah. yeah. No, but I mean, maybe Nachshan Ben Aminadav was supposed to wait until the waters parted. Maybe he, he went too early. I don't know. What do you think? Well, he's certainly given credit for that leap of faith. And we're, yeah. we're always talk about him as an example of a person who- Right. In these situations, is right. if a person, and we're going to see it in the next chapter, also in chapter 14, if a person like Shaul is in the mindset of the, the nation is scattering and the enemy is coming, and therefore I cannot listen to the command of the Navi, then mm -hmm. what he's doing is exactly the opposite of what he's supposed to be doing. Right. That's, that's you know, that is really... the. So the Mepharshim have trouble, like what, you know, it seems so harsh for him to get this punishment for this, like, and, and you can really understand how panicked he was and how difficult it was, but that's exactly the point. Exactly the point is you need to have the faith. Right. The king has to show everyone else right. that faith. And if the king can't have the faith, so then... Right. You know, so, right, it's hard for the people to have it. The mm -hmm. leader is the one who, and that's why it's so so much emphasized. But I showed you the psukim in the chumash because the right. the, the right suya small. His job, the job, the king doesn't work independently. The king works together with the navi, and his right. job is to follow what the navi says. If the navi says, "Wait until I come," wait seven days until I come, then you got to wait seven days until he comes. And the fact that he couldn't do that was showing that he he really thought that it depends on his effort. Mm -hmm. 
It depends on also, his effort. Right. But it's, and it doesn't depend on your effort. It depends on a Kodesh Baruch Hu. Right. And also it shows that he was, that he didn't have like that he didn't have the leadership skills that he needed because if he gets swayed by all of those external forces and not keep an eye on the prize and knowing that Hashem is really going to step in when he needs to, that again doesn't show his ability to really have true kingship for eternity. Uh, spoiler alert, right? When when we see David, David and Melech in a similar situation, David is completely completely full of faith he doesn't let anything that's going on around him stop him like this is you know a Kaddish Baruch who could do this you know we see that right away in the story when we first meet Goliath in chapter 7 uh, when we first meet David with Goliath in chapter 17 when we meet him in chapter 16 but in chapter 17 when he fights Goliath he's like I don't care if you're a giant you know armed to the teeth I don't care you're just an animal and God, God can get you and that's, you know, when, you know, unfortunately, the comparison, right, is not flattering to Shaul. Shaul gets rattled. And David's like, God's got this one. And uh, so that's, it's hard. The, the next few chapters, 14 and 15, right, they're hard. It's hard to watch Shaul, who is so wonderful and such a great tzaddik. It's hard to see him you know, make these mistakes, critical mistakes. And uh, sad. It's very sad. It's a very tragic figure. Hi, Zahava. Where are you? You're outside. Thank you. I am. Um, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm out with the kids in the pool, as you can hear. Oh, cool. That's nice. Oh, the wonders of modern technology. You can be on a Zoom, be out with the kids in the pool in another country across the ocean. <laughs> well, wow, that's cool. Anyway, a lot of noise. Sorry. Thank that's you. Okay. I'll talk right. to you later. All right. Uh, so next week, we will continue. This is a very, very exciting story. Chapter 14. And uh, a, lot, a lot goes on there. So we'll see you then, Bezrat Hashem, ladies. Have a good evening. Good All right, nice to have you on board. Tova, Lavia, Rina. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, okay. Laila Tov.